welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Our message today is going to be just two verses, just two verses in the book of Acts. And uh, it's chapter 1. If you have a New American Standard version, you will notice that verses 4 and 5 are included as part of the opening paragraph. That suggests that the translators of the NASB believe that verses 4 and 5 are most accurately represented as part of Luke's opening prologue, his opening statement. Such a rendering also assures that this promise of the Holy Spirit is not a last-second thought that Christ expresses just just moments before his ascension in verse 9, but rather that the Holy Spirit has been an integral part of Jesus' teaching concerning the kingdom of God during these 40 days, during the whole 40 days in which he appeared to his disciples. That may seem a little bit insignificant to you until you begin to determine whether you view these references to the Holy Spirit in verses 5 and 8 as, as, some, co- as some kind of you know, fourth quarter Hail Mary pass that Jesus flings to his disciples as they watch him just, just moments before they watch him ascend into heaven, or if you conclude, as, as I do, that the ministry of the Holy Spirit has remained a major emphasis of Jesus' orders, his commands concerning the kingdom of God over these entire 40 days described in verses 2 and 3. The Holy Spirit becoming Jesus' premier subject matter would fit most naturally with with the most literal rendering of Jesus' statement at the end of verse 5. You may have a footnote there uh, that would accurately translate that. You will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not long after these many days. These many days that Jesus spent with him. Either way, we should not view Jesus' handoff to the Holy Spirit, uh, shouldn't view Pentecost as a last-second surprise trick play. No, no, rather, if you're a Packers fan in the old Lombardi years, this is the power sweep. Everyone sees it's coming, everyone expects it, but there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it. This is the Holy Spirit's power sweep. In fact, the Holy Spirit, who is extremely prevalent in the discussions of John's gospel, he plays, uh, the Spirit plays a starring role in Jesus' ministry all the way back to chapter 1, uh, beginning uh, at the very beginning with Jesus' baptism. Then, then we see him again the night, at the nighttime rendezvous with Nicodemus, to whom Jesus suggests, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again by the Spirit of God. And we also discover the Spirit 
who Jesus also refers to as the Comforter. Uh, he becomes a major player at the Last Supper, where Jesus tells his disciples, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And find that in John chapter 14 and verse 26. Therefore, as I read, as we read together verses 3 through 5, I believe our most accurate understanding should be that the Holy Spirit continues to be magnified by Jesus as a premier subject of interest with his disciples over these 40 days. Uh, one further note, as I read the opening words in verse 4, uh, gathering them together, literally the Greek means to, to share salt. It's a, it's a figure of speech, a common figure of speech in that day, which implies Jesus gathered his disciples to take their meals together. So if you don't mind, I'm going to read the beginning of verse 4 in that way. To jog our memories just, just a tad as to the context, I'll begin reading from, from verse 3. To these, referring to the apostles, to these Jesus also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God gathering them to eat their meals together. Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not long after these many days. So, uh, this... A baptism with the Holy Spirit, this is what God our Father has promised. This is what he had promised. So he, uh, referring to the Holy Spirit, he remained a significant part of discussion while the disciples shared their meals together with Jesus. You know, we could learn something right there. Right there already. How often do we as Christians... Uh, how often do we remember to make the, the ministry, uh, the baptism of, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, a chief focus of our dinner conversation? I realize a protest exists that, that the Spirit, whom Jesus refers to as our helper, you know, he, he keeps it his divine prerogative to testify to the glory of the Son. And Jesus does say in John 15, verse 26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, says Jesus. And of course, Jesus tells his disciples at that very same moment, and you will testify also. So, uh, the, the focus of the Spirit's testimony is always Jesus Christ. The Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, uh, there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. 
If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he, God, has testified concerning his Son. So, it is sometimes claimed that that since the Spirit doesn't testify to himself, but to the Son, you know, we should really amplify in conservative circles, uh, conservative theology, how this how the Holy Spirit doesn't receive any attention at all. Well, as soon as anybody gets a little too crazy with that spirit, we're going to tap it down. And, and there are certainly things that are mistakenly attributed to the Holy Spirit, you know, like rolling around in the aisles and kissing snakes and other stuff like that, uh, uh, that, that the Scripture does not attribute to the Holy Spirit. And Scripture does not attribute falling down and convulsing uncontrollably to the Holy Spirit. Scripture attributes that elsewhere. So so we'll go ahead and tap down behavior like that. But Christ, during His earthly ministry, and during these 40 days following His resurrection, Jesus offers a pretty strong endorsement of God the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus insists to his disciples, the Holy Spirit is exactly what the Father had promised. Well, where and when did the Father promise him? Hold that thought for just a few minutes. Before we go there... Ask yourself, are you comfortable conversing about the Holy Spirit? You know, we'd better learn to get a little comfortable with he who is called Comforter because we are going to discover that throughout the book of Acts, God the Holy Spirit stays pretty busy in churches that grow. In fact, unless the Spirit is busy working, a local church will not grow and it will not be used by Christ for building the kingdom of God. We better welcome activity of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews describes the Spirit as a heavenly gift that Jesus assures us God had promised. It is He, the Holy Spirit, who convicts of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, says John 16, verse 8. Uh, He is also sovereign. The Spirit blows wherever He wishes, John 3, verse 8. And unless one is born again of the Spirit of God, he or she cannot enter the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit also, Titus 3 and verse 5, washes and renews and regenerates our spiritually dead and totally depraved sinful hearts, uh, thereby making us alive to God through the activity of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 and verse 26 promises that you know, when we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf 
that are, that are groanings that, that, that are too deep for words to express. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. He also searches our hearts. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit imparts to us divine gifts for Christian service according to the sovereign will of God. Uh, he also gives a, a divine and an irrevocable call to the gospel ministry. We have uh, guest missionaries with us today who had a call to the gospel ministry. Just as God the Holy Spirit declared, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And how did the church in Antioch respond? Well, they responded with the laying on of hands and then giving them what they needed, sending them out. How about, how about the permanent sealing of the Holy Spirit of promise that is guaranteed to all, in Ephesians 1 and verse 13, to all who have believed the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Conviction of sin, spiritual rebirth, sovereign regeneration, intercession on our behalf, divine gifts of service, calling to the gospel ministry, sealing unto the day of redemption, boy, do you get the feeling that the Holy Spirit is someone that we should be talking about? If so, good. How about our spiritual service of worship? How about spiritual worship or worshiping in the Spirit? You know, all these are just merely a taste of what we know about God, the Holy Spirit, the heavenly gift. Friends, you know, you have probably shared salt with, with uh, people who don't even want to bring up the topic of the Holy Spirit. They're, they're frightened uh, of what might happen. Boo! They, they don't want to crack open that box for the fear that, well, they may not be able to stuff it back in again. In fact, some of you may be uncomfortable even now just listening to, to talk about the scriptural ministries and manifestations of the Holy Spirit. But he is precisely what God our Father promised. Yet rather than even talk about him, some just want to leave that heavenly gift, you know, just leave it sitting wrapped neatly under the Christmas tree. Just keep that boxed up over there. Yeah, don't open that one. Don't, don't even touch it. I mean it. Leave it alone. To those with such fears, I, I must forewarn that the book of Acts is, is going to pull the ribbon right off of that box. And it's because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus says, this is what 
the Father had promised. So, so exactly when and where did the Father initially promise the Holy Spirit? Is the giving of the Holy Spirit a, a New Testament invention? You know, some have come to the belief that the Spirit was never active until Pentecost, nor, nor played any purpose in the Old Testament. But when we turn our eyes to Scripture, we, we find already the, the second verse of the Bible, Genesis 1 and verse 2, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I don't think it's a coincidence that just a couple verses later you'll see that the waters are divided. The sky to the ground, the Holy Spirit active already in creation and the six days. Um, shortly before Noah and the flood, Genesis chapter 6, then the Lord said, Well, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. And in Exodus 31, for the purpose of constructing the Lord's tabernacle, God said to Moses, I have called a man by the name Bezalel. You heard of Bezalel? I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. The Holy Spirit gifted Bezalel. So activity of the Spirit isn't new. His work surely precedes creation. In fact, knowing that Jesus prepared his disciples extensively to anticipate that the Holy Spirit uh, will arrive, whom the Father will send, can we rest assured that this early church, these first believers, uh, can we be assured that they were Trinitarian from the very beginning? Nod your heads, yes. Yes. The Trinity is not an invention of man over time. The true church has, has never been confused about the triune nature of God who exists simultaneously as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whom the Father had promised, all sharing one divine nature. We see the Trinity active already at Jesus' baptism. And in Acts 1 verse 5, Christ says, John baptized with water. John's baptism, it was a baptism signifying repentance. That, that there was, there was a, in Israel a, a sorrow over sin. John himself said, God who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one, he is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist says, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Clearly, John the Baptist believed in the Holy Spirit. 
Christians should also be aware, or maybe beware, uh, that today we aren't baptized into the name of John. All right? We're going to run into this when we get to Acts chapter 19. Uh, there's a little misunderstanding that circulates. I've never seen it here. Uh, but uh, there's a misunderstanding that, that we should still be baptized into the baptism of John the Baptist. That somehow there's a superior baptism uh, that he had that, that we need to be baptized into. Uh, yeah, that's not accurate. We are to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and in doing so uh, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But in a sense, we know that John the Baptist was Trinitarian. As Christ uh, came to him to be baptized in Luke 3 and verse 21, and he saw that heaven was opened, and, and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in bodily form, like a dove, not as a dove, but descended like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. So there, there were three distinct personalities, all three divine, all three simultaneously present, who participate in Jesus' baptism early on. All three are in Acts chapter 1. We aren't even five verses in yet, and here we see the Trinity present in the early church. Uh, therefore, this I have seen, uh, oneness Pentecostalism. You may have heard of it. Oneness Pentecostalism, which denies the existence of the Trinity and, and rather professes a type of modalism, a modalism that teaches God existed as a father during the Old Testament, in the mode of a father, and then turned into Jesus the Son during the New Testament. Usually they identify that as at the moment of his baptism. And then changed modes again at Pentecost, transitioning into the form of a spirit. Folks, that, that is a false, that is a very dangerous and heretical doctrine that is in not in any way Christian. Uh, one is Pentecostalism, outright denies Scripture and bows to worship a falsely concocted deity. Stay, stay far from that. Because the Holy Spirit did arrive at Pentecost And as an eternal God the Father had predicted, uh, he was active in the Old Testament, this Holy Spirit, uh, alongside the Father and the Son. Yet, um, in that Old Covenant community, you're going to wonder what the difference is. Under, in that Old Covenant community, Israel, the Spirit wasn't gifting every member of that Old Covenant Old Covenant community. And the Holy Spirit didn't indwell everyone who was an Israelite by birth. He didn't testify to the Son in the manner the Holy Spirit does today. And the Spirit in ages past, therefore, did not previously, as he does since Pentecost, baptize 
all members of the New Covenant community into Christ's church by faith. You see the difference? Unlike the nation of Israel, God's New Covenant, it's not made with an ethnicity that includes those redeemed mixed with unredeemed. The nation of Israel, some believed, some did not. Rather, the new covenant assures that our unity and our oneness with Christ and with one another through being baptized by one spirit into one body, his church. All members of the new covenant community are baptized into Christ. In this way, then, the baptism or immersion of the Holy Spirit, the church in this way is born at Pentecost. In short, the Old Covenant never achieved this same kind of unity in Israel. That, that Old Covenant was made with an ethnic group of physical descendants of Abraham. In contrast, the New Covenant belongs to a unified group of spiritual descendants of Abraham, who by God's Spirit have the same faith as Abraham, which means under the new covenant, the entire community of faith is redeemed by the Spirit of God and indwelt and sealed by him until the day of redemption. God the Holy Spirit is not new. He's eternal. But his work of redemption is new. Do you see the difference? And this is what, well, this is what God our Father had always promised. When did God promise it? At Christ's baptism? No. After Christ's resurrection? No. This promise of the Holy Spirit was given centuries before Christ was even born. During our scripture reading earlier from Isaiah chapter 44, the Lord assured, I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord. In other words, once God pours forth his spirit, descendants by faith are going to start popping up everywhere. This is what the Father had promised. Is that one single reference a little too obscure? Well, I have a couple more. In Isaiah 59, God promises again, quote, A Redeemer will come to Zion. It's named Jesus. A Redeemer will come to Zion 
And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit, which is upon you, and my words which I have put on your in your mouth shall not depart, nor from your offspring from now on and forevermore. It's Isaiah 59, verse 20. Uh, that future reference by Isaiah is to the new covenant. And uh, there is also the following announcement of this same new covenant and spirit found in Ezekiel chapter 36. This is while Israel was still in exile. The Lord says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Add to this Zechariah 12 and verse 10, which says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. Isn't that interesting? They will look at me, says the Lord, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. God the Father, speaking of God the Son. As one mourns, wait, he says it, as one mourns for an only son. This is way back in Zechariah. And they will weep bitterly over him, like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Isn't that something? All fulfilled in the New Testament. Christ the firstborn. Joel 2 verse 28, which we're going to hear Peter quote on the day of Pentecost. Joel writes this, It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Way back in Joel. Just one more for reference. This will be my final one. It's from Zechariah 4, though there are others. It's from Zechariah 4, which we have repeatedly cited together over the last few months. And where the Lord declares, uh, my temple will be built, well, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So what is it that the Father has always promised? He promised a pouring out, an immersion, a baptism in his Holy Spirit. When and how many times did the Father promise it? Well, the promise was clearly announced centuries before Christ's birth and, and numerous times re repeatedly in the Old Testament. So then... Should the baptism of the Holy Spirit take the apostles or us by surprise at Pentecost? 
Or is it something that Israel should have been expecting all along? It was clearly to be expected. Uh, The promise was so frequently repeated that the religious leaders in Israel surely should have been anticipating it. This is probably the reason that Jesus displays a little bit of frustration uh, with a, a Pharisee, a ruler in Israel named Nicodemus. Because after telling Nicodemus in John chapter 3, truly, truly, I say to you that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That is, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit, says Christ. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And the response of Nicodemus. How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you a teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Jesus marveled at the fact that a ruler, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, if I remember right, was not prepared for the pouring out of the Spirit. In fact, the Israel's religious leaders were, they were completely caught off guard by this pouring out of God's Spirit. Uh, they, they thought that Pentecost was a trick play. That's how in the dark they were. But the Holy Spirit's power sweep on the day of Pentecost is exactly what God the Father promised all along. So, we've repeatedly learned after the first, ah, the last, excuse, first part of this year and then through the last several months that the Old Testament promises a Savior, Right? We spent weeks studying the prophecies of Zechariah and and Haggai and, and other Old Testament prophets that assure there would come a builder in the Spirit of God and, and would be God's very presence on earth. Uh, his name would be called Branch, just to jog your memory, because he would branch out to all the nations, interceding as a priest and ruling like a king. But the Son is not the only thing that the Old Testament promised. The Father also promises, I'm going to pour out my Spirit everywhere upon all mankind, and you're going to receive power to be my witnesses. The result is that believers are going to start popping up, springing up everywhere. Jesus told them, you know, John, John, he baptized with water, but you are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not long after these many days. Folks, are you witnessing according to the power of God's Holy Spirit? Are you witnessing at all? God's Spirit was given for us to testify 
to the Son. And not too many days from now, we will see that the Spirit, we will see the Spirit in full power on the day of Pentecost, and that power ought to increase our testimony in faith. It is the power of the Holy Spirit that is poured out for the conviction of sins, explaining the righteousness of God and preparing for God's judgment that is still to come. You can reassure people that God loves them. God loves them so much that He's willing to give His one and only Son, His firstborn. You can assure them also that they are a sinner, but that God's Son died for their sins. In doing so, He offers them complete forgiveness and eternal life. How hard is that? You won't have to win all the arguments, which is good. You won't. You won't. All our Lord asks us to do is go out and be my witnesses. And then leave the handiwork in the soul to the baptism of God's Spirit. It's that simple. In the power of the Spirit, witness. You don't have to think that I'm... I've got to make this person believe. It's not hinging upon you. All that Christ asks us to do is be his witnesses. The rest is up to the Lord.